This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, in one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Michelle Brofman, author of the novel Swimming with Ghosts. I'd gone to a Torah study class and we were talking about how Isaac and Esau were fighting over a birthright. And I was listening to the story, I was completely compelled. And then I thought, wow, at some point, I'd like to write a book about two people fighting over two siblings fighting over a birthright. We'll be back with Michelle Brofman after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. 
Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. My interview today is with writer Michelle Brofman, author of the short story collection Bertrand Court and the novels Washing the Dead and Swimming with Ghosts. She taught creative writing at the George Washington University, the New Directions Writing Program, and the Johns Hopkins MA in Writing Program. She founded Yeah Write, a writing coaching business. She lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Her new novel, Swimming with Ghosts, tells the story of the families and drama surrounding a cultish summer swim club called River Run in Northern Virginia. At the center of the novel are best friends, Jillian and Christy, who both have children working and swimming competitively at River Run in the summer of 2012. Amidst the pep rallies and pasta parties, the two women must reckon with traumas of the past and unknown secrets coming to light, including the fact that one of them knows that they are sisters. As a derecho, a freak land hurricane is brewing. The tension increases as Jillian's perfect life unravels and Christie's love addiction comes to a boiling point. We began the discussion with Michelle Brofman sharing what brought her to the page to write this story. I wrote it when my kids were really involved in summer swimming. And I think the thing that was haunting me was, you know, I'd been a swimmer my whole life and it was just hard to kind of not become one of those crazy parents. And sometimes I was, and I wanted to know, what winds us, I'm going to say us, what winds us up so much? And it has to be something that we're, have not resolved yet from our own lives. Like what makes parents kind of get a little too involved? So then I just started asking that question of myself and I wanted to know more about that. Like, where was that coming from? What in my own history was I bringing to the pool? And that's how it started. Yeah, setting seems really important. It seems to be like everything with this novel. And when you say summer swimming, like I had never really heard of this sort of thing, but it's basically like maybe neighborhoods or towns that have pools that have competitive swimming. So maybe it's like a club sport, but over the summer. And it isn't just that the kids go there, the whole family maybe belongs to this pool. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about what you saw at your pool, like what was the community that you saw that you were interested in writing about and maybe worried that you would get sucked into and like how setting 
is important for this novel. Yeah, it's critical. So the Summer Swim League in the D.C. area and in other areas as well, you're right, it is definitely based on a community pool. And so um, it's a super short season and it's just intense. The parents run the meets. So in other year-round sports where you have a little bit of separation between the kids and the parents, parents are at least like sitting in the stands. Here, the parents are doing everything. They're timing and they're serving as officials and they're hiring coaches and they're deal, you know, figuring out food and they're just they at the pool all the time. So it and they're arranging for pasta parties and you know, painting the cars with you know, go, you know, go manta rays. And so it's um it's just a super fun and can get a little cultish too, because really you, there's not much room for anything else during that very short six suck six to eight week period and that's i i always said oh that's low-hanging fruit because you know you get this cast of characters who are so single focused just to pull this whole season off and there's always it's always very hot (laughs) so in dc at that time and so it gets literally and metaphorically hot (laughs) during some of these meets And so what did you maybe see in the community around you that you liked and also what you were afraid of getting too deep into? Well, I saw that there were some families who were holding on super tightly to this vision of summer swimming and how that would express itself in their particular pool. So big fights over whether or not to serve, um, to do a, a a barbecue or have a food truck at a Wednesday night meet, whether to buy coffee from Starbucks or use the old kind of rank coffee, uh, <laughs> coffee percolator, whatever they're called that, you know, had been used for many years. So what I saw was people just kind of, um, getting super invested in these really small kind of traditions, even more so than, you know, they were in their kids' times. It was kind of this holding on to a certain way um, that the pool should be and a certain magic that should be created, you know, throughout the summer. And I thought that was just really interesting. And where did you fall in all that? Oh, you're going to make me answer that part of the question. (laughs) Well, I was one of the reps. So I was kind of running the meets and where I fell in was, you know, being the, um, kind of the middle person in terms of figuring out which traditions we were going to change and which traditions we weren't. So I got involved that way. I think my vulnerability was more in terms of, you know, the other pieces of the swimming, which, which other parents also got sucked into in terms of the meets and who was going to swim on the relays and all that kind of thing. So I think that was my rabbit hole. And I, before every meet, I'm like, okay, Michelle, you just gotta just, just back away. (laughs) Let these kids do what they're going to do. So that was kind of more my Achilles heel than whether or not we were going to, you know, caravan to a swim meet or each drive our cars separately, you know, those, that kind of issue. When you decided to fictionalize it, what was important to you to put into Swimming with Ghosts, like how you created the characters and the setting? It wasn't just that you wanted to maybe explore the things that you 
saw could be traps for you, but it seems like you wanted to explore certain kinds of characters. I did. I wanted to explore um, characters and I wanted to understand the nature of their specific family histories and why maybe they were getting so caught up in kind of sustaining this version of the pool and this version of a idyllic summer experience. And once I started following the scent of that particular, you know, finding the answer to that particular questions, then the characters really started talking to me and they started coming alive. And that's also when I found out about around that time when I found out about this specific form of addiction called love addiction. And then, boom, I was off to the races. In your novel, it takes place, it's the start of summer. It's at a a pool called River Run, and we have two best friends. We have Jillian and Christy, and they both seem to be experienced a type of friendship that they had never had in their lives before. And they're in their mid-40s, I would guess. Their kids are teenagers, upper teenagers mostly. They're kind of a pair. Like they, they're called Krillian. Everyone knows they're together. They do everything and they just don't have any drama in their relationship. But for whatever reason, something changes this summer. I mean, there are reasons in, in your novel, but their friendship breaks. And one of them, as you said, Christy is a love addict and that starts to boil over and for Jillian she is kind of a legacy at the pool her father was a larger than life figure that helped shape what the pool was but he was also a drunk and a cheater and so she has this idea of what perfection looks like because of the sort of public face of of her father but also kind of what she knows from her family life. So just wanted to ask you to talk more about these two characters and grounding them in this summer pool. At some point when I was thinking about, and I don't even know how my ideas for books come together, but it's just all of these ideas and thoughts and, you know, they just kind of settle in. And one of the things that um, I'd been thinking about was I'd, I'd gone to a Torah study class And we were talking about how Isaac and Esau were fighting over a birthright. And I was listening to the story. I was completely compelled. And then I thought, wow, at some point, I'd like to write a book about two people fighting over, two siblings fighting over a birthright. And so Christy and Jillian, what happens, this happens very early in the book. So I'm not really giving any spoilers. They, they, Christy finds out that they're actually sisters. And when that happens, she starts to understand why she was so drawn to Jillian, why there was just this easy intimacy, why Jillian was kind of had just stepped in and become the sister that Christy always wanted. It was all there. But also when she finds out about their, their, her paternity, she realizes, wait a minute, why does Jillian get this pool and this legacy and this, what was then the myth of this, you know, Jillian's father who Jillian had repainted as recast as a charismatic person. I mean, his alcoholism, you know, obviously is part of who he is, but that's not who he was at the pool. He was just this larger than life guy who everybody loved. And there's a picture of him doing a swan dive in the lobby of the pool. And all of a sudden Christy 
you know, who's um, who always did feel a little marginalized from her family. She because she didn't she knew that her father wasn't her real father and she had a lot of feelings about that. All of a sudden, it just wakes up this bear inside of her and she wants everything her sister has and her love addiction gets triggered. So I think the origin of that really had to do with the birthright piece of the story and also this very as you said like this very easy familiar kind of intimacy she had with um her sister one of the things i thought about this is like what is your legacy in the world like how much does where you come from impact the behaviors that you um display later in life and how much do we want to or not want to own that and so that was a big part of the book and it was also mostly it was like Christy sort of rearranging in her head who she thought she was because she found out about this paternity that her father was the same father as Jillian but for Jillian I think it was like breaking barriers down and being able at some point to be vulnerable and not be perfect and not see that she came from this perfection. So you have also that tension going on between the two. There is that tension going on between the two. They're both experiencing what I think of as a perfect storm in terms of, you know, that's why the the, the derecho theme is the this this um storm comes into the town and it's basically it's called a derecho, it's like a land hurricane and it's the perfect storm. I mean, you have to have a certain number of days of humidity and you have to have a certain temperature and it wreaked habit. It just destroyed the entire um, pool and the town was out of the, the D.C. area was out of power for like 10 days. So I think that that's what happened between Julian and Christy as well. All of these factors kind of conspired for them to um, have to face who they were and in turn what their legacy would be and own these painful parts of their family history. So what you did structurally in the novel, though, was you told each chapter had a different name associated and kind of a different point of view kind of going on. It wasn't um, first person. It was all third person, but it was still more in the head of that character. And it wasn't just Christy and Jillian. So around all this was when you mentioned earlier that Christy kind of wanted the life that Jillian had and Jillian doesn't have a perfect life. I mean, her, she, she wants to, but she's working really hard to pay the bills because her husband lost his job and was miserable in his job. But, um, he now decides that he wants to be the coach of swimming and kind of announces that in a way that surprises her. And she's trying to work really hard to make the money to survive and keep up appearances. And when Charlie decides that he wants to, that's her husband decides that he wants to coach. He sort of gets a new lease on life and he shaves his head and he's in shape and he starts to look really good. And when Christy, who comes from a love addiction background, um, wants what Jillian has, she puts her attention onto Charlie. So we have Charlie's point of view as well and their son, Justin. So we go back and forth. So we can talk about all of the plot points I just mentioned, but also, you know, the decision to make it in different points of of view. 
Well, going back to the perfect storm idea, like you just listed all the factors in this particular summer, you know, why is this summer different from all other summers? I always ask myself the Passover question. Well, right. Charlie, all of a sudden, has some kind of awakening and and Christy finds out about her paternity and you know all the and so there are all of these different factors conspiring to wreak havoc on this pool and kind of blow it up for lack of a better word better term and in order to do that I really felt like I needed to be in Charlie's head and I needed to be in Charlie's son's head as well as um the consciousness of the you know two sisters, Jillian and Christy, or I couldn't have that panoramic view and show kind of the, the, all the factors that were kind of stressing this particular community. And if it were just Jillian and, um, and Christy, they're almost, they don't see as much like Justin, this Jillian's son is kind of like my, um, he has a little bit of a distance he can, he's like my Nick Carraway in a way, he can give you more of the panoramic view. And so that's why I decided that I absolutely needed four different characters. And Jillian and Christy also, they make a lot of bad decisions. And, um, and so I wanted to, the other characters to give a little context for who they were and why they were behaving in the way that they did. And I think that that fleshed everybody out more. And did you know that before you even started writing? Yeah, I had written a story from Justin's point of view, the Jillian and Charlie's son. Um, I'd written a couple of different short stories, which I do often when I'm finding my way into a novel. And I'd written a story from Charlie's point of view. So Jillian and Christy were kind of new. And um, I, I, I kind of, I, I knew that I was going to include, you know, the these other male voices as well. So how do you know if you're writing short stories that it really has the leverage to become a novel? If I want to keep going and if I want to write from other characters' points of view, and this just had a lot of juice to me. So I just thought there's so much more here. But now when I go back and I read the short story, um, it was featured in Politics and Prose had an anthology um, of, you know, DC area stories. It's a politics of process, a big bookstore in the DC area. And, um, and that, that story was nominated for a push cart. And I thought, okay, there's some kind of energy here that I really like. And then I went back and read it like, oh my goodness, so much of the, the actual DNA of the novel is right in this story, even though a lot had changed. Did you go back to it when you were writing or you didn't go back to it again? No, I didn't go back to it until I was writing my acknowledgments. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, oh, I should thank them for publishing this story. And um, it's called Take Your Mark. And and then I, I had published another story in the Superstition Review, which featured Justin. And this particular night, he's at the pool and feels the ghost of his grandfather. And when his friends are all getting drunk and um, I had written that story. You said that when you started thinking about this book, then you learned about love addiction. So how did you learn about that? And what about it made you feel like this has got to be in the book too? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was after I'd written the short stories that I'd learned about love addiction. I remember I, I went out to, I was having dinner with a friend um, and I had just finished a reading for Washing the Dead and she brought it up and 
we just started talking about it. And I thought that is so fascinating in terms of how you could leverage this particular kind of addiction. It's not sex addiction. Dopamine hit comes from attention from this whole thing called intriguing. So if someone texts you or calls you or that's where the dopamine comes in. It's not from like the orgasm, which is the the sex addiction. So I thought that's so fascinating. Like what would it be like to create a character with a certain kind of background that would make them so vulnerable to that kind of attention and um, react to it in that particular way? So I thought, gosh, this has to be, this has to be part of this character. And then you see how much it, you know, how much that particular addiction fuels the plot. Do you think that the people at the swim club that you hung out at are trying to figure out which one of the parents had this love addiction? I'm sure they all think it's me because they always think that when you write a book that every every juicy part of the book has to do with like your own biography. Yeah, I, I, I might get that question. We'll be back in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to these episodes pitch free and without advertisements by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In the novel, when you talked about creating, when you thought about creating Jillian, she is kind of, I guess you could call her if there's a victim here, she's kind of the victim, but she's her own foil as well because she doesn't want to let go of the legacy of her father because she's so attached to this perfect childhood which she knows isn't perfect but at the pool it sort of was and she's the swim rep she's kind of the leader of the band so to speak of the swim parents she kind of makes everything happen she holds the traditions but she also realizes through necessity that she has to let go of some of them because Charlie's coaching. She wants to support him, but she's also trying to make money and going out and trying to support her family. So she can't maybe be as present as she wanted to. But one of the things about her is that she's, she's kind of addicted to social media. She is really into Facebook and every single moment has to become this perfect picture. She is one of those people who post the absolute perfect life on Facebook. And it's interesting because I think it eats away at her too, but I was curious about this element of her character and creating that. That's such a great question. So Jillian is kind of the prototypical adult child of an alcoholic. And um, so what's really important to her is that she's constantly spinning this life for herself. I mean, she even physically spins. That's her form of exercise. But she's always trying to curate moments and present them in a way that just seems so perfect, as she does with this legacy of her father at the pool. I mean, the father was you know, he caused 
so much pain within the family, but the only thing that she will allow herself to look at until this particular summer is this notion of her handsome father swan diving. I mean, she has this picture all over the place. So the Facebooking, or some people call it fake booking, is very much within her character and it's how she manages herself. And as long as everything's going to plan and she can control, she's a huge need to control her environment and um, control the narrative of her environment, then she's okay. But as soon as it starts to crack, then she starts to crack, which is what happens this summer as part of the perfect storm. Yeah, and she did have a moment of cracking. I'm not sure how much earlier, a few years earlier, where her older son, who used to swim and doesn't want anything to do with the pool anymore, who's named after her father, um, they have kind of an incident where she's kind of pushing him to race in a certain way that is really... um, uncalled for and kind of outside the bounds of what any normal person would do. So she almost has like a break there that has affected her relationship with her son and in some ways her other son and and her husband, because they kind of, they try to gloss over it, but it's kind of this deep wound and scar in the past. So wanted to talk about that. Well, that's exactly right in terms of how deep this wound is because that is not Jillian. She's, he really keeps it together and brings the fun. And um, in this particular moment, she lost it. And she has a lot of shame about that. And it really revealed who she was. And that's kind of a moment when she's just a, a haunting when her she's feeling her father, because that is something her father would have done. She's feeling him at the pool and she <clears throat> she loses it. But it's an aberration. And that's why it's so scarring. If she was doing that kind of stuff all the time, they would have a different reaction to it. But it follows her around. And so she is aware of, oh, my goodness, I can be haunted by this man and take on some of his alcoholic-ish ways um, if I'm not careful. Did you know when you started writing that that her character needed to have some sort of rift like this, a break? Yeah. This summer couldn't be the first time she had to have a moment in her adulthood where it became apparent to a very small group of people that she didn't do it. She did it publicly, but there weren't that many people at the pool. And she definitely needed to have this because that's her ghost. That's what haunts her, even though she stuffed it down and she, you know, she, she covers it and she's always perky and trippy and Facebooking, but that's in her. And she knows if she's not careful um, this ghost is going to come back and she's going to be that kid she was, you know, waiting for her dad to get out of control and dreading it. So what do you think the role of hauntings slash ghosts are for characters in fiction? I think that's a good place to mine a character's um, psyche because one of the questions that I ask myself when I'm writing a character is what haunts them? What is unresolved? What follows them around? And I think if you can answer that question or explore that question, then it hugely informs the nature of the trouble that you're going to assign to that particular character. So if you know her vulnerability, Jillian's vulnerability is she is this part of her painful part of her childhood growing up with an alcoholic 
and a womanizer, then all of a sudden like, okay, I'm going to give her that trouble. She's going to have a husband who does this. And what do you think, you know, haunts Christy? Well, so Christy's mom was very ashamed of the affair that she had with Jillian's dad. And in turn, she's kind of ashamed of Christy. She's uncomfortable with Christy's beauty and Christy's sexuality. And Christy's stepdad, who is actually a very lovely man, um, is not as effusive as Christy would like. Because Christy always feels like they're the biological child between her stepfather and her mother is, you know, the favorite. And she always feels like she's kind of, you know, looking through the window, um, like pounding on the window, trying to get into this little cocoon of love. And that that's what haunts her. And that's her vulnerability. Yeah. And she has, she has two children. She married a Jewish doctor and she, um, he isn't very present at the pool. He's busy and working all the time. And her older son has gone to Israel. So it's just her younger teenage daughter who's at the pool, who is a lifeguard. So kind of in, in the inner sanctum, I guess, of the pool scene. And, you know, Christy, she seems on the outside that she did have it all. Like less, I mean, she has this wound from childhood also, but she seems to have recovered from that. So for her, like she wasn't haunted in the same way as Jillian, but what happened is that she got this news. Like she could have gone ahead and lived for forever in her space she was in now and not have her old love addiction creep up again. But she, after her mother died, her father, who she calls her father, Travis, um, gave her a box of things. And in that box of things, it was revealed who her father was. You know, I'm not so sure that she could have lived the rest of her life without um, succumbing to her love addiction because she was not using, she wasn't acting like a love addict you know, for all of these years, but she wasn't really in recovery either. So she didn't really have the tools to stave off whatever it was that might've threatened her. So for example, she was also, um, she relapsed a little bit when her daughter was born because all of a sudden it brought up all of these feelings of when her sister came into the world and, you know, having this new little probably female baby, you know, in her world, like she, she had a little relapse then. So I think that she's always, she's kind of on shaky ground, but this particular trigger was absolutely going to send her back. And she didn't have the support system in place that she needed to stave off the feelings that she had from finding out, oh, okay. So I have another stepsister who got everything that I didn't. When she discovers this, and it sort of triggers these feelings or desire for Charlie, her best friend's husband. She steps back from hanging out with Jillian, which is really mystifying to Jillian because they seem to have this bond that was unbreakable. And that's where most of the drama in the story lies is the story. The bulk of the story is them having this separation in their friendship. So how do you approach writing this kind of, tension of where you have to have like half misses and jealousies and you know how did you try to modulate that and and hold that as a writer thinking about your reader and how they would take that all in 
Um, well, yeah, Christy steps away because um, she really can't even tolerate being around Jillian. She's so uh, angry and and hurt. And and at, when I had when I had early drafts of the um, novel, they're like, "Why is Christy doing that? Why is she being so mean to to Jillian? <laughs> What's going on?" Because she doesn't just step away. She does some pretty snarky, uh, manipulative stuff in terms of manipulating other people on the team. And there's this one up and coming mom, and she steals the whoopie pies that were meant for Jillian. <laughs> she's she's really acting out. Um, but in terms of holding that tension, I just had to go in her character and think, why, why is she so mad? What is so threatening to her? What's the white hot center of her, um, her emotional core? And that it always took me to that place. And in terms of Jillian, I didn't want her to just be like this victim. Oh my gosh, Christy, Christy, Christy. Like she kind of had to be working on her own stuff as well. Um, so it's really just kind of an exploration of the nature of this it goes back to this birthright question. Like what is going on here? What is the white hot center emotional core of this book and their relationship? Do you think though about when you're writing this, like how to sort of modulate the tension from a craft point of view, how to sort of bring them in moments where they're together or where they have near misses or like how you balance that throughout a novel? Yeah, and and in the later drafts, I kept moving um, Christy's discovery of her paternity closer and closer to the beginning of the book, so that I could create more tension. Because in the early draft, Christy doesn't find out till later. Like, well, what's she being so bitchy about? <laughs> you know. But as as I started kind of figuring out the story, I moved that so I could up the tension, but then also, as you said, modulate it so that it was something that was always roiling beneath every single action, but it wasn't getting, hopefully wasn't venturing into the land of melodrama. So that's always a question in terms of how to, how to calibrate, modulate, whatever words you want to use, um, these big tensions in the book. Well, I think what's interesting, too, and Charlie has his own set of issues. Obviously, you know, he lost his job. He is kind of having his own renaissance, but he also goes for it. Like he can feel the energy that Christy is putting out toward him. And he, I mean, whatever he probably, I mean, he does have some um, imperfections, you could say, with his relationship with Jillian, but he also is both, I think, expressing his own agency, but also like falling for something. Well, Charlie has been kind of controlled by Jillian since they met. Jillian helped him get his, figure out how to get his job and was always his biggest cheerleader. And I think with this, you said agency, with this awakening and this event, getting fired, all of a sudden he's like, wait a minute. You know, I have some control here. I have some agency. And so I think he's vulnerable to somebody like Christy paying extra attention to him because he's starting to come into his own. Charlie is not a love addict, though. Not like Christy. I mean, he's that's not what he's about. This is, I think, his part of his emancipation from Jillian and really kind of I mean, and he doesn't 
he's not necessarily doing it to stick it to her either. I think he's just doing it because he's like, God damn it. You know, I'm, I'm 50 years old and it's time for me to grab the brass ring and I can do this. I can, it's not like, and I want to do this. It's not like, Oh, I'm going to steal the pool from Jillian. I mean, that might've been subconscious, passive aggressive stuff, but it was more like, no, it's my turn. You know, I've been, I've been towing the company line and working a job I hate for all these years. And he like literally molts layers of himself and just tries to figure out who he is. And I think in part of that aggression and kind of testosterone surge, um, he has a momentary, you know, lapse of poor judgment. So it sounds like, you know, you mentioned the storm, this derecho that comes in that is like a land hurricane that sort of is the sort of crowning moment when all these things come together in the book. It's like when you learn in school sort of this um, model of storytelling where you have the um, the rising action and then the crescendo and then the denouement that that happens like three quarters into the book. There's this storm that happens and it sounds like you knew that was going to happen and that all these things were leading to it. And so you're creating this pu- propulsive thing leading to that. And did you know since the very beginning that was going to happen and what elements were you for, for you were very important to include in, in the final storm kind of scene? Well, I, I hope I'm not like negating what I said before, but the, I don't know that the derecho haunted me necessarily, but it's part of the origin story of the book. I don't think there's ever one thing. I mean, there was part of my own observing, you know, my community and my role in it. But, but then when that storm hit, it was just incredible. I mean, it was so powerful. And I noticed that people were, you know, my, uh, my husband, we were living in our basement because it was so hot. We didn't have air conditioning. And my daughter was like polishing my husband's toenails blue and he didn't care. And I'd go out and these people would like start just, nobody had filters into telling me their secrets. And I thought, this is, this is such a great place. You know, you always want to knock your characters off game. Like this is such a great psychic space to have your character. So I, I started thinking about it in terms of um, that would be a good climax of the book where all of these forces that had been kind of, you know, appearing, you know, Charlie's taking the job and Christy finding out a person like it would all erupt the night of this epic land hurricane. And if you talk to anyone in the DC area, anyone might be an exaggeration, but it's almost like, where were you when, you know, you, you know, talking about someone in my parents' generation, like, do you remember where you were when you heard that JFK was shot? Like not to be, <laughs> not to exaggerate, but you know, thematically, it's kind of like, if you ask people, Hey, do you have a derecho story? They'll tell you one. They remember 2012, that summer, June 29th, 2012, like what they were doing, and they'll tell you a story. And so I thought, gosh, that is so impactful. I, it, it really um, was a huge event. And I have to I have to make that as like the culmination of all of these other tensions and just boom. You said that you really wanted to sort of investigate your role at the pool or your vulnerabilities or what interested you. So I'm curious if through the writing or now that it's done, if you see all that in a different light. I do. I was writing it um, over a period of time. I think I started writing the short stories 
Well, while I was shopping my first novel, because I go, no, this novel doesn't sell like I got, you know, like I need to have something else that's getting me excited and keeping me going. So I, I sat with this for a really long time. And then I got serious about it after my second book was published. But I was still in that world. And the pandemic hadn't hit, which I think kind of made a lot of people rethink, you know, everything. <laughs> so over time, you know, I started to definitely get like more perspective. And then after it was sold, you know, I was started to still, you know, work on it. But it wasn't until I was copy editing and I was reading through one of the last passes and I was just laughing, like all of these things that I didn't even realize were satire, which is so funny to me. And I started laughing at my own ridiculousness. So throughout the long process of, you know, bringing this book into the world, a lot happened in my life. You know, my kids are not empty nesters. They're not part, they're not spring anymore. We've had a pandemic. Um, and I'm now one of those alumni parents. So of course, you know, my thinking is going to change about kind of the satirical parts of this book. But then I've also learned a lot more about family addiction and that's, help me think through like the meteor parts of the book as well. But it must be kind of interesting to be so involved in something like it was your whole life. Like you were talking about if you should caravan or drive separately and then your kids leave and it's gone, it's done. It is weird. Well, I think the pandemic softened that a little bit because it was more of a slow exit because for one summer there was no swimming and then they were kind of bringing it back and my kids were at the tail end of their swimming lives. So the sport was also changing um, and they were trying to figure out how to bring this this treasured part of, you know, the, the D.C. area swim community back to life. So that kind of helped, but yeah, I mean, it's just like having the nest empty all of a sudden, you know, your, your life revolves around, you know, three different seatings of dinner and, you know, it's like, then it's you and your husband, like opening a can of tuna, you know, <laughs> things change and they shift, but, um, my kids are, they're doing great and things fill up the summer that are just as rewarding and Maybe not quite as intense, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Is there anything else you want to say about the book that I didn't ask you? I guess my big thought about the book is that, um, and through the writing of it and the thinking about some of the major ideas, what came out later is that this really is a, a hopeful book. And it's, as I watched these characters struggle with um, how addiction had kind of altered the whole family and the larger community. I, I really do believe that we can transcend our most painful family legacies. I think that my characters can do it. I think I can do it. And that just became kind of my um, true north as I was revising in the final stages. Like they're stuck and they're relapsing. And this is a rough summer, but, you know, the um, Aborigines burn their crops. You know, that's a way for them to um, to burn the soil as a way to regenerate growth. And I feel like you know, there is something about raising that whole community and the and 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 the clubhouse. The, I'm giving stuff away, but the burning it, burning of it, that allowed for fertile soil for them all to grow and regroup. And you know, it's almost a, a chance for rebirth. So that's like one of the big ideas that got stronger and stronger and more important to me as you know I kept revising. We'll be back in just a moment. Remember. You can listen to these episodes pitch-free and without advertisements 
by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? So I, it's a tough choice, but I picked this memoir called A Door in the Ocean, and it's by David McGlynn. And it's um, his story of, I mean, it's about a lot of things, but swimming, he's a competitive swimmer. And that kind of is one of the through lines of the book. And I read this in 2012. And I didn't even realize that until I just looked at the copyright date, right when all of this was starting to percolate. And I didn't even realize how much it influenced me until like yesterday when I dug it out. But I just picked this book because he's such a beautiful writer. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the promised land. The river marked the line between exile and home. So it was to the river John the Baptist went to baptize and to the river Jesus went to be baptized. They stood together in the water. Baptism is an act of exile and return, a metaphorical journey beyond the borders of your people, the same hands that push you out, pulling you back in. The water isn't an accidental element in the right. We're meant to live near water, not in it. In baptism, we drown and return again to life. When I wash up on the shore at the end of a swimming race and dash the last 50 feet for the finish line, I'll feel a little redeemed. I'll have left the world and made it back. I'll have made room for my heart to grow. I'll move across the sand with the other swimmers who have endured this too. A volunteer kneeling on the sand will strip off our timing chips as we walk away from the finish line. Another hand will hand out cups of Powerade, the color and temperature of urine, and power bars that have been in the sun all day, like flattened Tootsie Rolls with a little gravy train mixed in. I'll chow it down on it hungrily. Before attempting to climb the stairs, I'll sit for a while on the sand, my chest pink, my feet in the tide as I look over the windswept waves, the paddle boarders, the swimmers still crawling in. I want them to see me when they run up the beach. The tide will wash over my ankles and retract, calling me back out. All my stories lead to water. In my earliest memory, I'm padding toward the business end of a three meter diving board, water wings on my arms, my father treading below as he calls to me to jump. On our first date, Catherine and I went swimming in, in the Great Salt Lake. Her legs bobbed against mine as we floated in the briny tide, the water a conduit for my courage, allowing me to touch her calf, her thigh, to reach around her back. The water wasn't simply a backdrop. It was an X in the question. On dry land, the outcome might have been different. Jeremy and Matt returned to me in the water more often and more forcefully than anywhere else. I'll look to the lane beside mine and see them there, our strokes and cadence, or one of them coming on hard. I pick it up to stay ahead, unable to resist the urge to compete, even with my ghosts. I find myself reliving old races, remembering old workouts, laughing at our old jokes, alone in the water, surrounded by time. Do you want to say anything more about it? Well, just what I said before, I discovered a door in the ocean the summer of 2012, I think right before the derecho hit or before I was even writing this novel. And I was so moved by how David McGlynn is able to write about water and swimming with so much um, spirituality and um, and how he calls back to these ghosts that haunt them and how the water is, you know, such a big part of his storytelling. And I think that probably inspired me to 
to explore that in my own book. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Um, So I wrote this passage and I'm not sure it changed that much, but the placement of it was really tricky. I didn't know where to put this scene where in the beginning where Jillian as a child is watching her father do this swan dive. And I moved it around and I think I finally settled at a place where it worked. I mean, it used to start the book, but, um, and it was my way of kind of, Jillian can be a little controlling. So my beta readers were chafing at her. It's like, okay, this is actually her emotional core. This is the source of her um, vulnerability and what makes her who she is. And it occurs at the River Run Pool when she is um, a teenager, young teenager. Dad took a long drag on a cigarette, picked up a stray beer bottle, and jammed the butt into its mouth. He tightened the tie of his trunks and winked at the swimmers, chanting his name. He approached the diving board and started his climb. The chanting grew to a roar. Swan dive, swan dive, swan dive. When he reached the last rung, Julian held both her and her mother's breath as his foot wobbled. Even the loudest little kids quieted down. He stood on the rear of the board and gazed at Jillian. For a second, she thought she'd get in trouble for using his camera without his permission. But instead, he yelled, get this baby girl. His faint slur likely unnoticeable to anyone but a member of the Norton family. I will, she mouthed. Jillian prayed. She asked God to wrap his arms around Sebastian and guide him into the water so he wouldn't hit his head on the board and die. She prayed for Mr. Spillman to run out of beer for the family to head home before her father started wanting something stronger and for her mom to designate tonight Jiffy Pop Saturday where they would eat popcorn and then play Monopoly. She pushed the camera harder into her eye socket, trying to sense when dad would start his dive. The sun beat down on his broad brown shoulders as he strode across the board with great purpose. Jillian's heart pounded so hard. She thought it might rattle the river run pen she tied on a string around her neck. He jumped once, twice, three times. And on the fourth bounce, he raised his hand over his head and leaped into the air. In that split second, Jillian moved back far enough to capture him in his glory. His long arms spread like Jesus on the cross and his lips split open into a grin, practically spanning the width of the pool. But she stood close enough to edit out the beer bottles around his empty chair. Click. Dad's entry was perfect. God had listened to her. Do you want to share more about that? I guess this is Jillian's first Facebook post. She, <laughs> This is predated Facebook, but this is the picture that she took of her father in his moment of glory that she actually, he entered in a Washington Post photo contest and she won. And the picture goes to hang in the pool and in her living room. And it's so important because this is a moment where she can hold on to as an adult and even as a child of him doing this beautiful swan dive and it resonates throughout the book. Where do you write? I write either in my office or at a public library. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, I sometimes will go and walk on the CNL Canal. We live really close to the Potomac River. Or after I finish a draft, I will treat myself to a, a matinee, a Diet Coke and a buttered popcorn, and I'll just sit in the theater alone. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? 
my husband is my very first reader, but I've had to instruct him on how, what kind of feedback he needs to give me and what kind is going to shut me down. So he's a, he follows his little manual very carefully. He's a wonderful first reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection just really ticks me off. And so it kind of, it kind of emboldens me to just go back out there and keep, um, keep trying. So when I usually get rejected for story or something, I'll just boom, send something right back out. I mean, I don't love getting rejected, but it does, it does spur me to action. And what is your favorite word? Schmutz. I kept asking myself that question because I knew you were going to ask me and I kept coming back to the same thing. Just love, it's just a fun, funny word. And it's, is what it sounds like, like, you know, dirt or a ketchup stain or (laughs) schmutz. Yeah. Bringing on the Yiddish. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm so appreciative. Mitzi, thank you for really doing your wonderful Mitzi Rapkin job of like just going deep into my book and asking such great questions. It's really an honor to be here and to talk to you. I so appreciate it. If you like today's show with Michelle Broffman, author of the novel Swimming with Ghosts, Check out my first interview with her about her novel, Washing the Dead. We talked about Jewish death rituals, keeping secrets in first-person novels, and learning what to cut from manuscripts. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Alice Elliott Dark and Elizabeth Graver. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.